And he must have a firm grasp of the unchanging message so that he can be counted on both for giving encouragement in sound doctrine and for refuting those who argue against it. WSFI 88.5 FM presents Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Well, hello and welcome to this May episode of Reclamation Theology with Kyle Clement. Kyle is loyal to the Magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church and has been involved in the curriculum consultation formation of priests and lady relating to Catholic liberation and exorcism for over 15 years. He's a member of the Religious Association Societas Matris Dolorissime, which he founded with Father Chad Ripperger, who serves as his superior. He provides instruction, evaluation, case investigation, consultation, and ongoing formation for bishops, exorcists, dioceses, and religious institutes in the United States and beyond. And more recently, Kyle is one of the founders, I'd say he's probably one of the prime movers, but he probably won't say that, of the Liber Christo organization. So Kyle, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning, Angela. It's good to be with you and your listeners this morning. Yes, and I keep introducing you, Kyle, because you're getting more and more listeners who are just discovering what a precious pearl this Liber Christo organization is. And also I have Marian Harold, who has a radio station, also is my sister in Massachusetts. Marianne, are you there? I am. Good morning. And happy Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. Yes, happy Feast Day. Happy Feast Day, Kyle. God bless you. And what will we talk about this morning? I think we'll talk about several things this morning, but let's start with St. Joseph the Worker. To understand who he really is, I think, helps bring us back to a grounding in traditional Catholic theology, and understanding. Now please understand that in the last generation, for sure the last 50 years, Catholic identity has been militated against very, very strongly, both from within the church by the modernist and relativist, and from outside the church by those ecumenical, um, seemingly would work in, in the guise, under the guise of ecumenicism, and seek to diminish the Catholic uh, identity. What do I mean by Catholic identity? I think that we do well to understand um, the Catholic identity. And I'll just make some, some uh, observations, especially how the integrity of the Catholic identity has been subtly militated against in this country and is continuing to be militated against in this country. First, some observations. Very clearly, this is not a Catholic country. Deal with that however you want to deal with it, but it's not a Catholic country. It is a Protestant country. It is founded by predominantly uh, and in large majority Protestants. It was founded on the concept of revolution, which is not a Catholic concept. And it has militated against the integrity or the monolithic universality of the Catholic faith. What do I mean by that? To be Catholic is one's primary identity. You'll hear people identify themselves as I'm an American Catholic or Catholic American. It's getting harder and harder to put those two words in the same sentence. And so I think that we're in a very unique time in history that it was not unlike the first century. And so, which, which is, is your political affiliation in opposition to your faith? Yes, I said that. I'm, I'm continuing to say that. What do our shepherds say? 
in first century Judea, what, what had happened is the Pharisees and Sadducees, the powerful people within uh, Judaism, had become politically aligned with Rome and to the diminution of the faith, to um, the loss of integrity of the faith. And so there was an exchange um, for temporal well-being versus spiritual um, union with God. We find ourselves in exactly the same place where the rogue organization of the USCCB as the governing body, self-appointed governing body, that the idea that this is a that this council is something that is traditional, it's not traditional. We only see it in the last few uh, last 50, 60 years of the history of the church. And most importantly and most virulently, we see it um, in the United States where a group of bishops starts changing the face of the faith. But you can go back into the last century, and all of us are very familiar with how the Catholic faith was fragmented, and it was done ingeniously by Freemasons and those that were playing upon our culture. And so what they asked us to be was be Catholic second or third. And first was American. You must be American. The second one was what is your ethnicity, country of origin? So we were Italian-Americans, we were German-Americans, or Americans of German descent, or of Italian or of Irish descent. And look what it did is that it set up the fragmentation of the church more than a century ago, when on every block you would have an ethnic parish, you would have a Jewish, I mean, a, a, an Irish parish, you would have a Polish parish, you'd have a German parish, you would have an Italian parish, all in close proximity. What would have happened if monolithically all of those people had said, no, we're first Catholic? Then you would have had a, a voting block and a mass of people that would have been un, unmanageable from the Protestant mindset. And so understand, first of all, that, that we've been managed as a, as a faith and as a people in the same way that the Jews were dispersed and managed. But the adversary has a learning curve. He gets smarter every year. And this is a good time for me to shamelessly plug um, a new program in Libra Cristo called the Libra Cristo War College. And in this, wow. particular, this particular program, what we're going to do is Father Riffiger will speak and then um, I, I will bring the Dan Snyder will bring the uh, strategic implications of what's happening. And then I'll address the tactics. So it's strategy and tactics of how the adversary works what his learning curve is, how he's much more subtle and adept at warfare and waging spiritual warfare now than he was in the first century. And so we're going to look at historically, just like a war college, what are the past, past battles? What can we learn from them? What is the um, trajectory, if you will, of the attack? Where are they finding, is the opposition finding weakness in us? And so it's a, it'll be a very interesting and refreshing look. And so it's a shameless plug for this new Liber Cristo program. Go to www.libercristo.org for more details. But it's a Liber Cristo War College. Now back to our discussion. <clears throat> what would have happened in the late 1800s if the Irish, Italians, Germans, all of those who were escaping persecution of various forms, whether it be famine or religious persecution, famine in Ireland, religious persecution in Germany, 
Freemasonry in Italy, whatever it may have been that forced the Catholic to come to the United States, what would have happened if when he hit these shores immediately, he was assured by clergy and by local Catholic hierarchy that you are Catholic. Please assimilate into the Catholic community rather than find your own and isolate. Then the Catholic voting bloc would have been monolithic from their faith standpoint. And so ingeniously, the Freemason leadership of the country instigated this ethnic rivalry and this kept us fragmented. It also, now we're seeing 120, 130 years later, how easy it is to close these small parishes that had all of them been united in large parishes, it would have been more survivable. A funny aside is there was an Italian immigrant who came to New York and he wrote back to his family in Italy, the Catholic faith is so present everywhere. Every other street is named for Our Lady. And so as you walk through Manhattan, it's the fifth Ave, it's the sixth Ave. And so he was reading Avenue as Ave a little ethnic humor there. The point that I make is that when we look back, we see what has been done to the faith, the integrity of the faith. And so that brings us to election year 2020. And so what happens is that if we don't vote our faith, if we don't understand the right order of the, of the primary concerns of our faith, and we're going to get to this in the third part of this program, more poignantly, the unholy alliance between the USCCB and the government has to be brought to light. Follow the money. On this program, I've considered, I've consistently asked for a Maccabees, a Judas Maccabeus, someone to step up, a layman to step up, because we are in Hasmonean times. We are in the times where the rogue organization USCCB, which purports to be the voice of the Catholic Church in the United States, squelches the true church, which is the laity, which is the mystical body of Christ. It squelches it, and then it has an unholy alliance with the federal government to the tune of about $300 million just per year. Just follow the money. And so it's time for preservation of faith. This brings us to who St. Joseph really was. St. Joseph is known as the patron uh, of the church, and rightly so. He is, the, he is the steward of God's most precious things. He's the steward of the Blessed Mother, God's favored daughter and spouse of the Holy Spirit. He is the steward of of the Christ, of the Messiah. And so there are devotions which say, and God entrusted him with his household. The magnitude of that, not only responsibility, but the honor that comes with it, gives us an idea of how we should revere St. Joseph. His words are not individually recorded because I would propose that his words are the words of God Almighty. If you know the... if you, Jesus himself says, if you know the Son, you know the Father. If you know the Father, you know the Son. St. Joseph's will is so much in comportment with God's holy will that they are synonymous. St. Joseph is the, is the earthly father of Jesus. What better way to understand that St. Joseph discharges 
the duties and obligations, power and authority of fatherhood perfectly. And it's not that he's silent where he should be speaking. It's that his actions speak so loud that he doesn't have to to speak with words. But who taught Jesus to work? Who taught Jesus to pray? St. Joseph. St. Joseph has been diminished like all fatherhood figures um, in recent times, most specifically by a teaching that comes out of um, the Jesuits, that comes out specifically out of the Jesuits. It's been fostered and pressed upon uh, their young priests who then pass it on because they're in a position of instruction in colleges and, and higher learning, even high schools. And so what am I talking about, this image distortion? Within the Golden Legend, and incidentally, if you don't have this book on your bookshelf, I would highly recommend it, the Golden Legend. And it is a, um, it is a collection of our Catholic traditions and understandings of our faith that, that goes back um, to the beginning. So it's a very, very good resource. But it clearly says that, and our church fathers understood that Joseph, this Joseph, if you follow his genealogy and you follow who he is, this Joseph was he who would be king. This is a man who lived a celibate life because he was the ranking member of the Davidic monarchy, had there been a Davidic monarchy. He was the man who would be king. Literally, he would have been, if, if the Pharisees and Sadducees had suppressed Herod and gone in search of the true Davidic king, the Davidic line, it would have been Joseph. Joseph was a consecrated worker. He was a carpenter. He was a worker of wood. The symbolism is just too rife to miss here. Um, Joseph is working in reparation for the curse. If you will remember that in Genesis God curses the land and says, because of what you have done, Adam, because of what you have done, you will now toil by the sweat of your brow will you eat. I would propose to you, and so did the church fathers, that Joseph is living a life of reparation. He's living a life of labor because God had so deigned that we should labor. So what we see as redemption and the willingness to suffer in reparation for the sins of the whole world in the Son on Calvary is preceded by his father spending a life of labor. I think that this is, is one of the key points that we miss modernly. Joseph is, is of a mature age historically, but the Jesuit deformation of Joseph would have him be a young man about the age of Mary that the two of them were actually involved in a courtship that was set aside uh, when Mary becomes uh, pregnant by the Holy Ghost. I cannot speak enough about the evil and disorder of this deformation of who he really was. Modern movies disparage both Mary and Joseph and the understanding of exactly who he was and what he did when he took Mary into his home. Why Nazareth? Why some? Why this distant spot? Nazareth means the branch. It was a community that was named for what it was, and that was a group that was, had distanced themselves from the temple. They had distanced themselves from the temple because 
the temple had become a place of corruption. The temple had become a place of illicit sacrifice, of corrupted clergy, of corrupted politicians, and the um, alliance, unholy alliance between politics and priests. And so they had distanced themselves to Nazareth and were living in a remnant community in Nazareth. I think that to understand what happened and was happening in Judea at this time and Samaria at this time is analogous of our country. And so one of the things to realize is that when Israel was right with God, when Israel was right with God and they were unassailable, they were absolutely uh, invincible, is when church was state. It's when church was state, meaning that all governance state was in accordance with church, which was covenant. Covenant relationship with God preceded man's relationship with man. Very simply, to see church and state in this way is to see the Decalogue in functional application. The first three commandments of the Decalogue teach us how to relate to God and how to be in right and blessed relationship with God. And then the rest of the commandments deal with our relationship to each other. If we invert this, if we invert this and put our relationship with each other at the primacy, this is state becoming church. That's where we are today. That is exactly where we are when we're talking about one world government, when we're talking about all of these things. And it has to have this distortion whereby man's relationship to man is more important than man's relationship to God. That's the deformation. That's the inversion. That's when state becomes church. So when church is state, we're rightly ordered. When state is church, we're disordered. And so at this point, I want to to ask, uh, I want to, another shameless plug, if you will. Um, Right order is so very, very important. And so what I'm about to say, you can find details on this retreat at www.librecristo.org. People ask all the time, when will Father Ripperger give a retreat? He does not give open or public retreats. But this summer at the historic Boxar Ranch in Wyoming, we're going to host a retreat for fathers and sons. Father Ripperger is our chaplain. We'll we'll do rock climbing, canoeing, uh, horseback riding, black powder, um, small arms instruction. And Father's going to speak about the right order of masculinity and what man's role is in the church, in the preservation of our faith. And there's no better example than St. Joseph. He'll be the patron for this um, for this retreat. But this is a very, very unique opportunity for fathers and sons to go to the mountains in Wyoming and spend a week with Father Ripperger and the rest of us learning these masculine skills or masculine um, attributes, both spiritually and physically. And so that's something, the details are at www.librecristo.org. Go there and find out about that. But I would ask, I'm about to stop the section on St. Joseph, on who he was, on church and state, and the right order of that. So if there were questions, Mary Ann, Angela, if you've got observations, 
Uh, let's look at them until the half hour. I think that's such an awesome idea about that meal retreat. I am so excited about that. What is the date of that again, Kyle? I wish I were a man. Go ahead. <laughs> when is, is that going to be? It is in July. Um, and I think, well, go to the website and look because they'll have the right date. And anything I tell you, I'm not reliable on dates. Um, okay. But it is in we'll July. Do. Would they ever do something like that or consider something like that for women? A retreat for women, Father Ripper and yourself, because women, I find, are really at the forefront, and I am ashamed to say it, like in our Legion of Mary, adoration teams, um, and we, we need to learn to be women first. And, you know, Catholic women that are subservient to God, that's, that's another thought for the future anyway, but I just got so excited about that idea about men's retreat. Hey, guess what day And we're trying is. to get... Oops, sorry. We're trying to get a group of people to pray that um, I, I decided after I heard you say about the um, prayers, um, the deliverance prayers in that organization, to see if we couldn't get a group of people that would like to pray those prayers every day. And I need to order some books, so um, I'll, I'll talk to you about that later. But you are such an inspiration to us in Boston. I can't tell you how depressed we are here. <laughs> It's, it's, well, it's just exciting to have something beautiful like that to look forward to, Kyle. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thanks be to God. I think that uh, we've talked about, I'll just be very frank, we've talked about the um, women's retreat, and here's what we ran into with regard to women's retreat, is that we really want to do that. We think it has a, a real place, but virtual virtual conference is probably going to be more realistic simply because of the um, restrictions of the vocation of, of motherhood, uh, especially with multiple children in the house. And so we're, we're looking at a virtual conference. If you think that has legs or if you think that has merit, um, give us some feedback on um, length of conference and format because we recognize the need but we need some help in putting it together uh, structurally. And so, you know how this works in the Catholic Church. If you think it's a good idea, you just became head of the effort. <laughs> right. I have I have a, a group, and we, we're now doing a Legion of Mary mo uh, meeting on Zoom because uh, our churches are closed, uh, basically. And uh, we have women that would love to do that, that are big organizers. So maybe afterwards, I'm thinking of a net. Uh, who, who I told her we were asking you and Father Ripper to come to Boston to do a conference. I think she's the perfect person, very organized. And uh, there are a lot of people out there that would love that, and you can't come soon enough. I think virtual is the way to go for the I women. Do. Yes. Too. What do you think, Angela? Yeah, I think the man's retreat is the right direction for us because – yeah, that's as as men go in the church, the church goes. That's what we need is men standing up for the church, defending the church, praying with their families. And Kyle's cited a lot of data about if a father's praying for with his family, what happens to that family? And if he's not, what happens to that family? But I just want to say, Kyle, guess what date it is in July? What is it? It's my favorite. July 13th, Rosa Mystica. Ah. There you go. What a powerful day to start this. You know how she was reaching out to her priests. Right. 
Right. I think that I think that the right ordered masculinity and the right roles. Um, and you you said such an important quote, and that is how the men go, how the church goes. Um, we need to, as men, um, step forward against all the opposition, especially opposition from the from clergy who are compromised in their masculinity. Um, we, we have to address this. We can't keep walking around it. We can't keep ignoring it. We absolutely have to address it. Again, the call goes out for a Judas Maccabeus, for a layman who is willing to lead this effort. Um, because right now, all somebody needs to do is raise the standard and, and the men will come to you because uh, at this point in time, we've taken about all we can take uh, as a church and it's time for the men to step up and do something. And Kyle, that's where I met you was at a men's movement with Men of Christ in Milwaukee and what Kevin has done there, Kevin O'Brien. I mean, every year you go to those conferences, it just shows that men are so hungry and so open to restoring this proper order of masculinity in the church and in you their bring families. Up, bring up a great point, Angela, and I think that where the men's conferences are is another thing that we need to address, and that is this, is, you know, when you rally the troops, when you call the militia to defend the homeland, everybody rallies, but then you got to go do something. And so the time for rallying is over. It's now time to go do something. It's now time to march. And so these guys have done a great job rallying the troops. They've done a great job building the momentum. Now it's time to go somewhere, men. Um, and I'm speaking, Kevin O'Brien is a wonderful guy, uh, just a great guy. I've been in his home. You, you mentioned him. I think he's one of those candidates for Judas Maccabeus. I think that there's a lot of guys out there who are candidates for this. And it's not a single individual. I think all you guys get together and say, all right, we've rallied the troops. When you've got 35, I spoke to 3,500 men in Milwaukee. That's huge. That's fantastic. Now let's go do something. Right. Um, we started a Courageous Catholic Award last year, and we'll do it every year from each of the dioceses in which we broadcast. And Kevin was the recipient for mm -hmm. the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. But when I last spoke with him, he was almost building a league. So what they were doing was they were saying, okay, we have men of Christ. We're going to go vertical, right? We're going to try to get as many men's groups in the different parishes as we can. But then he was going horizontal. And he was on the phone trying to build relationships and kind of almost like the NFL, you know, building that league of men's groups so that they could do exactly what you were talking about. But I do want it not to put a damper on it, but one, one of the things we're experiencing here locally is there's a great balancing act going on between what's viewed as obedience to the church and the infrastructure and evangelization of the faith. So here in the Archdiocese of Chicago, for example, every church is locked. You can't go to church. The sacraments, I think they're trying to do something where two-thirds of the deaths here in Lake County have been in nursing homes, but you can't get in a nursing home, so you can't give them last rites. I think there's a couple priests now that are trying to organize something that they'll actually go in and give last rites where they can. But it, again, you know, this we're organizing a procession a rosary Eucharistic procession in cars so that we will do everything that the governor is asking as far as social distancing. And the last I heard, the coronavirus couldn't get from one car to another. But even there, Kyle, there's a spirit, there's two spirits of fear. There's a spirit of fear of retaliation, whether it's justified or not, 
that the church, for some reason, the church may not support a rosary on the feast of St. Michael the Archangel, asking him to defeat the virus like he has in the past and open our churches. So there's a fear that 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 idea wouldn't be embraced by the hierarchy of the church. And then there's a different fear. There's a fear that I've talked to so many people. They haven't been out for 45 days. They're in their houses. Maybe they go to their backyards, but they're afraid to go from their house into a car, go for a ride, pray the rosary on a beautiful day, and go back to their house in a car with no external human car. They still think that's going to be a health concern. They've been brainwashed. Um, I don't know. Kyle, what do you say to, to keeping the lady where, on eggshells? I hear you. And, and, you know, to quote a Freemason <laughs> here, a notorious Freemason, and to quote him badly, but I'll, I'll take you back to the height of the Depression and Franklin Delano Roosevelt saying, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. <laughs> yep. Bottom line is that it, what if you show up at the pearly gates dead of COVID-19 and St. Peter says, now tell me again how you caught this? Well, I caught it going to adoration. How does that story play at the gates of heaven? Now tell me again how you caught COVID-19 that killed you and that you are now presenting your soul here at the gates of heaven. Well, I, I did it because I was praying um, in public. Think about what we're saying. Think about what we're saying. Or if you show up at the pearly gates having died at an age of 110, quaking in fear in your house, and St. Peter says, now tell me how you showed up. Well, I aged out. The Lord gave me all these extra years to militate, but I was too afraid. And so I, I just kind of aged out, but I didn't get sick. Listen to this. We got to live our life as the story that we're going to present to St. Peter when we show up at the pearly gates, hopefully, or all of us will face particular judgment. Are we going to stand and look at our Lord and say, Lord, you, you know I love you, but I couldn't go out because of that COVID-19 thing. Lord, you know that I loved you, but we had a, um, we had a uh, clergy leadership that, that, was, uh, that made me f afraid that I would be embarrassed or persecuted uh, even by the church. The church burned St. Joan of Arc. Stop and think about it. If you're, if you're, <laughs> if you're persecuted by the church, that doesn't, you, how does this story play? How will you face our Lord at particular judgment? Not how you will face the, the, cre the creature, it's how will you face the creator? And, and I think that's going to be the key. Let me just fo follow on comment on that. See, in this case, it, it's an imagined fear because there is no health risk. You're going out of your car, out of your house into a car. You're driving with your windows rolled up and you're going back to your cage, you know, back to your house. So there is- Back there to is your a, cage is better. Yeah, back to your cage. They said it's like- We're house in cages. Yeah. We are in cages. Hang on, we, you, we lose the meat of the argument here. We lose the meat of the argument. And that is the, the real value is, let's go to 591 St. Gregory. His predecessor died quaking in fear in the Vatican of the very plague that he was afraid of. St. Gregory is selected Pope, and immediately St. Gregory the Great takes to the streets. This was a real fear. This was a real death threat. And St. Gregory faced it head on just like George faced the dragon. We can't sit around and say, okay, now rationally, let's think about this. There's no reason to be afraid. No, let's, let's 
false the, as hoist the banner of trust and say, trust and fear do not occupy the same space. It does not matter if I die of the plague. It does not matter if I die of COVID-19 because I'm going to die of something. The question is, how will I die? Will I die valiantly with the name of the Lord on my lips, not quaking in fear saying, oh, Lord, Lord, save me, but confessing Jesus the Christ, confessing God the Father, confessing that it doesn't matter what kills the flesh. What matters is what kills the soul. And that brings me to this point I've got to make, and that is this. Our church clergy, Cardinal Archbishop, made the, the blasphemous statement that it's my, him speaking, primary concern is your safety. No, sir, it is not. Your primary concern is salvation of souls. Today is also the feast day in the old calendar of St. Philip. Let's talk about St. Philip for a moment. When St. Philip is called, the church fathers say, St. Philip is the one who said, let me go bury my father. And Jesus responds, let the dead bury the dead. Do you recall this in scripture? I do. What is he saying? Yeah. Church fathers, the, the doctors of the church, the church fathers, fathers were very clear about what he was saying and we've lost this and so i think this is the the point that we one of the points we really need to understand is now of all times we need to go back to what did the doctors of the church say not not what some um modern relativist jesuit theologian say what did the doctors of the church say? What has the church always said? And what they've always said about this is that the spiritual works of mercy have primacy over the corporal works of mercy. Let me say that again. They take this scripture as well as several other places where our Lord is speaking, and they say that the spiritual works of mercy take primacy over the corporal works of mercy. And what you're seeing is a direct inversion of this right order where we are more concerned about the corporal works of mercy than we are the spiritual works of mercy. So prevalent has this become in our church that this is the inversion of Catholic social justice and everything else which placed into primacy historically and traditionally has place salvation of souls in the primary position. So the spiritual works of mercy have the primacy. The corporal works of mercy are secondary. Jesus himself articulates this to Philip by saying, come, follow me to proclaim the gospel and let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead bury their dead. And so this, this is one point. Now let's go back because Philip was one of Jesus's favorites. They were, they were all favored in different ways. But if you'll recall at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has, again, Jesus has fed them spiritually all day. The Beatitudes come out of this. He has fed them spiritually all day. And then only at the end of the day does he address their temporal needs. And he asked Philip, how many days wages will it take to feed these people? How would we fill them? How would we feed them? And so Philip is caught up in the temporal. 
and essentially says it can't be done, Lord. And so this sets up the miracle. This this sets up the, the miracle, the exterior miracle. But Jesus has fed them first spiritually. Then he addresses their temporal needs. Listen to what I'm saying. And it's not me saying it. It is the church fathers who felt and saw a clear ordering that the spiritual works have to precede the corporal works. And we've got this opposite where you'll hear people in our church say, well, if, they, if they're hungry, they can't hear. Well, that's not what happened here. That's not the, the order that this happened. Now, let's also see a vignette with Philip. He comes to Jesus and he says, there are Greeks who want to meet you, who want to meet the Christ. And the language is very important. Because when it says there are Greeks here, they're there for Passover. They've come. They're seeking God. And when they want to meet the Christ, the anointed one of God, now Jesus says it's time for the passion. Because the Greeks, representing all the Gentiles, are now coming to see the Christ. Now They're, they're now coming to God. And so Jesus now says it's now time. It's, it's now time for the sacrifice. It's now time. So Philip brings them to the Christ. Philip brings them for this encounter. Philip is very, very important in our understanding of faith because it is through Philip and the interaction with Philip that Jesus gives the primacy to the spiritual works of mercy and then the the corporal works of mercy, those which address the flesh, come second. We have to remember this primacy. We have to remember this, this ordering. I think that when we lose the sight of, of souls, of salvation of souls, how is grace imparted to a soul? Through the sacraments. What you're seeing is a direct inversion and an articulation of this inversion by your clergy. And it speaks more to the political alliance, the fear that's there in the clergy, the lack of trust, the failure to understand exactly what an apostle is. And let me speak to that in, in, a, in a moment. What I want to talk to you about is, again, Liber Cristo is the Catholic method, the Catholic method of liberation because it returns a soul to the sacraments. It is the Catholic method of healing because it reconciles the soul to God. It's the healing of the soul has the primacy over the healing of the flesh. We can't stress this enough. The Protestant models, including Unbound and others, stress the healing of the flesh, the, the ceasing of suffering, that's the test of healing for those Protestant models. In the Catholic understanding and faith, and it always has been, that through the sacraments we conform our life and our, our will to God, and if it's suffering, so be it. Let, it. let it happen unto me according to thy will. These words of Mary, this is one of the reasons that they're so against Mary, but at the centrality of liberation is the sacraments, and Mary is present to those, all of those. I think that this, this is such a key for us in our Catholic understanding, is that we have to place the primacy on all of our activities, 
on the spiritual works and then the secondary focus is on the corporal works. Libra Cristo, the details at www.librecristo.org. Libra Cristo will host a our second annual conference. Details about that conference are on the website. We'll also be hosting to promote Libra Cristo, to promote the Freedom Through Christ program, to promote this methodology. We're going to have a series of regional conferences. Details about those, again, www.librecristo.org. And so, as I come into this point, let's talk for a moment about clergy, and let's start at the top, and let's do it not from a critical standpoint, but from an observational standpoint. And Angela brought up a good point, is this walking the line of obedience. First of all, is to understand that obedience has to be, it can't be inferred, it has to be uh, requested. It has to be in response to a clear directive, and that directive cannot be against morals or doctrine. It cannot be against the faith. And so when someone commands you, for instance, a classic example of obedience and providence is Jesus before Pilate. And Jesus says to him, the power, the authority you have over me comes from above, meaning my father has allowed this and it's put you in this position. We all know that if Pilate had said, fine, then sacrifice to the Caesar, Jesus would have refused. Would that have been disobedience? No, it would not have been disobedience because it would have been a command that leads him into moral or doctrinal error. The doctrine is that the spiritual works of mercy precede the corporal works of mercy, the preservation of the faith, and the preservation of the flow of grace has a primacy over our temporal and our corporal survival. And so you can apply moral theology as been historically and traditionally understood to these things. And I will, we need to coin a term which is abuse of the obedient. Just because the clergy says it does not mean it's right, especially in this day and age where they have lost our trust based upon their past activities. And so they're, they're in a position of having to regain trust. We no longer can extend to them the best interpretation of their words or their actions. They, they've simply lost that trust. If the shepherd continues to lead sheep into an arid, non-nutritional, unnutritional um, a barren wasteland, a howling barren wasteland of relativism and modernism, if he continues to lead the sheep where they cannot thrive, where they can't even survive, then the sheep will cease to follow. And it's not because the sheep are being disobedient. It is that the base faculties of instinct and survival are going to trump the sheep's reliance on the shepherd. When the shepherd stops being a shepherd, then it's very difficult for the sheep to be sheep. And so this is something that has to be a conversation, is that if you want us to be obedient, be shepherds. Stay at home. Be among us. Don't talk about us. Talk to us. Extend us the sacraments. Be a shepherd. We'll be sheep. I think that's a really, really important concept. Um, but when you when you speak political speak, when you when you're aligned with politicians, when you are more interested in the temporal affairs and the these organizations that you're a part of and the political um, activities 
than you are in the sacramental life, the life of the sacraments and the salvation of souls, you cease being shepherds. So at, at, at what point is my obedience, is my, is my obedience going to um, clarify or going to get me out of trouble? A classic example of Angela and Marianne, you are old enough to remember the L Lieutenant William Calley case. Yes. This was this was a war crimes case out of Vietnam. And what happened was he obliterated a, a village. He clear he killed a lot of innocent people. And he claimed at his court martial, I was only following orders. And the orders were to secure the village and to um, eradicate any hostile forces. Well, he he went beyond what was intended, but he can't then hide behind orders. When you appear in, in, in front of our Lord and Savior at particular judgment, and he says, did you confess my name? Well, yeah, except during COVID-19, and then I cowered in my house because I was afraid of my own death. Guys, every single day, every single day is dress rehearsal for particular judgment. Every night when you do the examination of conscience, this is dress rehearsal for particular judgment. How will you answer for the day? How will you answer for the week? How will you answer for the year? How will you answer for your life, St. Ignatius? Uh, I mean, St. Athanasius, doctor of the church in the Athanasian Creed says, every man will give an account for his life. How are you gonna account for the 45 days of COVID-19 that you've been self-imprisoned because you are quaking in fear? Where is the trust? Where is the trust? Now this brings me to this final comment on the clergy, and that is this, let's follow Peter. Jesus selects Simon. At Caesarea Philippi, he changes his name to Peter, from Simon to Peter. And he changes his name based upon Peter's clear declaration of faith and confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. When he says, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Very, very deep, profound statement. And Christ says, you are right. This comes to you from above. Your name is Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Meaning, the statement and the papacy. This is the clear establishment of this. Now, the very next exchange gives you an idea of what the relationship between the papacy and the Christ will be like. And so what we get is a very clear, there's this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are right and you are Peter. And it's this statement that will found the church. And then Jesus, having just been identified as the living God, says, and I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And then immediately the papacy speaks. Oh, no, not you, Lord. And so now the will of the papacy, the will of Peter, is in conflict with the holy will of God, which was directly given to him. And Jesus' answer, get behind me, Satan. So Jesus very clearly and quickly corrects the error of the papacy, which was when Peter is saying, not you, Lord, 
what he's saying is, oh no, no suffering. Because he knows what's going to happen to Jesus is what's going to happen to him. If Jesus goes and dies, leaving Peter as the head of the church, then whatever happens to Jesus will happen to Peter. So immediately we hear the fearful response, oh no, not you, Lord, which is really what Peter's saying is, oh no, not me, Lord. No, I'm, I'm willing to, to lead your church, but I'm not willing to suffer. Listen to this language, because this is going to be a reoccurring theme. Jesus, in this moment, does not say, give me back the keys. He does not say, oh, wow, I've made a mistake. Uh, we're going to recall. We're going to have a new enclave, conclave, and uh, the rest of the apostles are going to elect a new uh, pope. He doesn't do that. He sticks with him, understanding that Peter's fear, trepidation, his humanity is going to be an issue because he knows that Peter will deny him in the same way that popes throughout the ages, different ones have denied the Christ, his sovereignty, exactly who he is, even to the point that some have resisted being called the vicar of Christ, who have been resisted being labeled as in persona Christe in our in our age and in our culture. They've been more concerned about their self-preservation. And so I think this is key is to understand this is nothing new. So Simon's name is changed to Peter. Popes since early on have assumed a name. They've assumed a name to be known in their papacy for whatever that may be. And so now I want to call you to the passion is past. Peter has denied our Lord. Our Lord is dead. He's resurrected. And there is an, there is an encounter on the beach at the Sea of Galilee. When the apostles encounter our Lord, they've largely gone back to regular activities. They're fishing. And to really call to mind and to punctuate the, the, the denial, there's a unique phrase that is used only twice in all the Gospels. And the phrase is a charcoal fire. The first time we hear it <clears throat> is in the courtyard of Annas when Jesus is before Annas and Peter denies him as he's warming himself by a charcoal fire. So it's very poignant. We got multi-century um, correlation. And so at the beach, Jesus is by a charcoal fire. Again, it's used only these two times, and Peter approaches. And Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus does not address him as Peter. He addresses him as Simon. He says, Simon, do you love me? So we've seen Simon go to Peter, name of the papacy, now back to Simon. Now back to Simon, because he's no longer acting papal. He's no longer acting Christ-like. He's no longer leading the church. He's pursuing his own interest, fishing. So let me put this in modern terms so you might see it. When does Jorge become Francis? Now back to Jorge. When does salvation of souls get secondary to salvation of the planet? When does governance of the church becomes secondary to governance of politicians. When does 
preservation of the faith becomes secondary to inclusion of Pachamama and other um, nature worship. You can't make this stuff up. When does Jorge become Francis become Jorge? When does Simon become Peter become Simon? And then when is he restored to being Peter? Jesus asked him three questions. Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know that I do. And Jesus is asking for total love. He's asking for sacrificial love. And Peter's not, Simon's not giving it. And Jesus says, feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. The church fathers and the doctors saw in this that the lambs are us, the laity. The sheep, the mature sheep, the mature lambs are the bishops, the governance of the church. Feed my sheep. And it's not being done. And it wasn't being done then. Peter, Simon's trying to feed the rest of the apostles by fishing. Jesus is saying, no, it's not the temporal works. It's, I mean, it's not the corporal works. Don't worry about feeding their flesh. Feed their souls. Feed their souls so that they may lead the lambs. Feed their souls so that they may lead the people and the church. And I will leave you with that reflection. Peter becomes Peter again. He redeems himself when he's willing to, to suffer and die and actually join the Christ in that passion. When he's willing to, to do the things that are papal. And until our clergy, they're not being fed. Our bishops are not being fed. Our priests are not being fed. And we're not being fed. We must pray that this Holy Father become a father and not a politician. That's the reflection on St. Joseph the Worker. Roll up your and go to work. Well, that's all that we have left. It's the top of the hour. Kyle, God bless you. Tell us again your website until we meet again on the first Friday in June. www dot liber cristo l-i-b-e-r-c-h-r-i-s-t-o dot org thank you angela thank you kyle god bless you god bless you marianne god bless you angel and kyle you have been listening to wsfi 88.5 fm Reclamation Theology. A copy of this broadcast will be made available at WSFICatholicRadio.org.